Recently, Iran and Saudi Arabia announced a joint agreement brokered by China to pursue the restoration of the diplomatic relations. However, according to some experts, and they believe this Iran-Saudi deal might not stick long enough. And meanwhile, China has been known for this political growth and also for this international influence. However, for so long that China has not been interested in meddling this domestic affairs, particularly regarding the country of Iran. And we believe the uncertainty around Iran's instability continued to weigh heavily on the Saudi foreign policy agenda. How about the relationship between Saudi and also Iran and also about the country of US? Putting everything together, what do we make of this? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, which is Dr. Christian Algerson. Now, Dr. Algerson is the fellow for the Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Pub Public Policy. His research includes the history, political and international political economy and international relations of the Gulf states and their changing position within the global order. He's also the author of the five monograms and the editor of three volumes about the Gulf states. Well, without further ado, Dr. Al Rickson, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Thank you for having me. Well, Doctor, again, I want to get started with the first simple question. Some people believe that because China was actually the mediator for Saudi Arabia and Iran, which came as a surprise for the entire world, how much do you think this Iran and Saudi deal is going to stick around? Do you think right now is it too soon to assume this relationship is going to be productive and fruitful, politically speaking? and? Economically speaking, what do you say to that? Well, as you say, the deal came as a surprise in terms of its timing and the fact that it was announced in Beijing with the Chinese uh, getting the deal over the line. Saudi Arabia and Iran had been talking intermittently since 2021 uh, via Iraq and Oman. Uh, it took the Chinese perhaps to bring the two parties together at a high level senior kind of leadership level to get these deals, mm. get the deal over the line. Now, Iran and Saudi Arabia have made agreements in the past. There were a number of agreements in the 1990s, when after the Gulf War, when the threat was from Iraq, not from Iran. In 1997, uh, when Khatami, the reformist leader coming to power in Iran, mm. the Saudis made a number of deals with him. That included a security agreement in 2001, which was actually referenced in the agreement signed in Beijing. So it clearly had some substance, although I think it was kept, the details were kept private at the time. What happened after 2001, of course, was the Gulf region became polarized. We had the US invasion of Iraq 20 years ago this week. And we then had a sectarian conflict in the Gulf as Saudi Arabia and Iran took different sides. And so that agreement really fell victim to regional and sectarian geopolitics. So I think what we'll be looking for this time is whether what has been agreed in Beijing is able to translate into a change of behavior on both sides, mm. which is sustained, which actually leads to further 
confidence-boosting measures, further exploration of ways in which the two sides can work together, and to what extent can China use any leverage it may have over Saudi Arabia, over Iran, to ensure that both parties live up to the commitments they have made. And again, the fact is that China can probably do this in the sense that the U.S. couldn't because mm. the U.S. could not have brokered such an agreement because they do not have diplomatic relations with one of the parties, i.e. Mm. Iran. So this is a, an advantage that China has, that they have the leverage to try to ensure that all parties actually live up to what they've signed. Mm. So that, I think, is something that will only become clear in weeks, months, if not years, whether we see a de-escalation in regional conflict, in flashpoints, in accusations from both sides that the other side is supporting groups across the region. If we see a sustained decrease in those areas, then we'll know that this agreement is actually leading to something tangible. You know, Professor, it's interesting that you use the word tangible. We know that when we are talking about this any political negotiation or economic agenda, tangible seems play a very important role when we look at any deals. Now, before we bring U.S. into the conversation, let's talk about the reality. Chinese president made a visit to the Gulf states not too long ago and also Meanwhile, the leader of Iran paid a visit to China as well. We know that China has been one of the strategic players on the international order. Some experts believe that by building this relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia, China is trying to elevate its political and also this economic influence. Again, Professor, going back to the point, how much do you think that China is really interested in forming the alliance or forming the relationship for the two countries? Or China at this moment, it's purely looking at the interests of internal domestic, uh, economic and political agenda. How should we understand that? So in other words, is it really looking at this action behind the words or only talk the talk? What do you say to that? Well, the Chinese have moved significantly ahead in terms of actually getting involved in mediation. Mm -hmm. This is a significant step that they haven't taken in the past. So this is something which is new. The Chinese have now tied themselves to an agreement. They will be either part of the uh, solution or part of the continuing problem if things don't get resolved. So they're now much more directly involved on a political level. Having said that, as you say, this hasn't come out of nothing. Chinese foreign policy has identified both Saudi Arabia and Iran as key partners in the Middle East. China obviously gets a lot of oil and gas from the Gulf, including from Iran. And in Chinese foreign policy, they've identified both Saudi Arabia and Iran as countries of special strategic importance to China. And so from a Chinese perspective, it's important for them to balance, to achieve a degree of balance in those relationships. And as you say, President Xi was in Saudi Arabia in December. He met with the Saudi leadership and the leaders of all other Arab Gulf states. And then he met with uh, the Iranian President Raisi earlier this year. So they're seeking to balance their relationships. They're seeking to ensure that the economic 
strategy and commercial basis for those relationships is not jeopardized by an escalation in conflict or any volatility or unpredictability. And on this issue, they found that both the Iranians and the Saudis were willing to go along because both Iran and Saudi Arabia, for different reasons, mm. also want to put this era of conflict behind them to some extent. The Saudis, because Mohammed bin Salman needs to focus on domestic economic reform for his vision 2030. He announced it in 2016. It's now 2023, so we're now halfway through, mm. and we're now moving into the implementation phase. So he needs domestic, he needs a space to pursue domestic policy without any regional instability getting in the way. And from Iran's point of view, we've seen the U.S. not re-engage in the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. We've seen more or less an acceptance mm. that that's not going to happen, especially as we move towards the next U.S. election and less than two years, and we've seen increasing escalation of rhetoric against Iran by the U.S. and by, by Israel. And so I think both Iran and China felt that this was a concerning sign that the temperature again in the Gulf could be going up, and this was in nobody's interest. And so the Chinese have maybe been more proactive this time than they would have been in the past in trying to assertively put themselves into the, into the equation at least to try and bring the sides together uh, where they can. Well, but Professor, again, let's bring another factor into our conversation is if we look at this domestic political situation in Iran, again, based on articles and based on reports, it is a fact that uncertainty within Iran's instability continue that to draw the attention of the world and also meanwhile that we know china has been well known for not meddling with any international affairs so do you think that that is actually one of the credibilities for china able to bring those two sides together so in other words put in a very simple way is to say i'm interested bringing two friends together but meanwhile whatever happens inside of her house has nothing to do with me. I am not interested in meddling, nor I'm interested in contributing the solutions. Do you think that's the really effective way for China to solve the problems or to build a, a relationship? Or you think China is strategically dodging this bullet in order to fulfill its own interest? What do you say to that, Professor? Well, I mean, China obviously sees its interest in dialing down tension in the Gulf and in terms of avoiding any escalation of regional conflict. That's mm. in China's interest, given the energy relationships it has with both sides of the Gulf. And so obviously the Chinese are acting in, in to further and advance their own interests. Mm. Having said that, as you say, the fact that China does not seek to judge and to interfere in domestic policy with countries mm. that it has a foreign policy relationship with is something that both Iran and Saudi Arabia like mm. uh, both Iran and Saudi Arabia have very active domestic political issues and scenes. And from an Iran point of view, they appreciate that China just engages with them on issues of common interest and potentially other, without sort of engaging in political issues. And with the, with the Saudis, the, you compare that to the Saudi-US relationship, which is becoming much more politicized, mm -hmm. much more on both sides, a sort of blame game as to between especially with Mohammed bin Salman and 
the President Biden has become drawn into a, a lot of other issues, which has affected the ability of the U.S. to do what China has done, which, of course, the U.S. couldn't do because they have a they have a lot more pressure on foreign policy making from domestic constituencies, and so. This has given China perhaps a comparative advantage that is appreciated by its, uh, its interlocutors, both mm. in Tehran and also in Riyadh. And so the, this has been sufficient to get this deal made. And so I think now, as I said before, we'll be looking to see whether this alignment of interest can actually now push into implementation, which actually would then go even further than what we've had in the past. So this would be, again, another milestone if they can agree to implement uh, issues that actually do lead to a significant change on the ground in the Gulf. Professor, I want to bring another topic, which is, again, interests our audience and viewers as well. We know that, or the whole world knows that, when we say Belt and Road Initiative, this is one of the signatory projects for the Chinese leader. Again, that includes more than 100 countries across the world to join this project. But meanwhile, Professor, you're the expert. I'm sure that you're also familiar with what we called Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030. Now, number one, help us to understand what constitutes within the Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030? And the second question is, how does, or how does, yeah, right, how does this project, along with China's interest for Belt and Road Initiative, do we see this joint effort where it actually can be turned into a competitive benefit? What do you say to that? Well, Vision 2030 was announced in 2016 by Mohammed bin Salman. Initially, it was a plan to utilize oil revenues to diversify the economy away from oil. Mohammed bin Salman famously said in 2016 that by 2020, I think we can live without oil, but of course that was premature. What's part of Vision 2030 is about creating jobs for young Saudis, it's about bringing technology transfer, it's about creating an industrial base in Saudi Arabia that is not dependent on oil and gas, mm. or at least on natural resources. It's also becoming increasingly clear that Vision 2030 is tied to a series of so-called GIGA projects, mm. which are these massive uh, initiatives to bring travel, tourism, entertainment, hospitality. So things like Neom, the mega city on the northwest coast along the Red Sea that people have talked a lot about. This new initiative called The Line, which is this massive sort of urban development, new cities with the industrial zones. So this is the kind of heart of Vision 2030. We've seen the plans so far have been more on the sort of design stage and they're now beginning to get developed and built. And so, again, this feeds into Mohammed Salman's desire to have a, a domestic and regional scene that can allow that stability to happen. Now, there could be complementarities for China, of course, in terms of aligning with Belt and Road projects. Mm. Uh, the, we've seen also a number of Saudi-Chinese uh, joint initiatives announced in many different fields, in technology and in, uh, in healthcare, for example, I think, as well. And there's some interest, I think, in, in kind of different types of energy. So, absolutely, there's a lot of complementarity, I think, with the Saudis' field. 
they can offer to Saudi I mean, to to China going forward. I think some of the details are still emerging. We saw mm. when President Xi was in Riyadh in December, we saw a lot of sort of talk about joint initiatives and MOUs, memorandum of understanding. I think we need to see the detail as to what that actually means in practice, but certainly from both sides, both the Chinese and the Saudi side, there's an interest, I think, in in working much more closely together as we get further mm. into the into the decade. Professor, I want to bring U.S. into our conversation. Again, based on the report, and we have seen the reactions from the U.S. side, despite the questions and asking, uh, how about this deal that China was able to bring, Saudi and Iran, which U.S. had made a greater effort for years, but suddenly China, again, was able to be the only one who brought the deal together. But so far, the reaction from the U.S. side has been very mild. So in other words, we are very happy that stability is taking place and we're very happy those two countries are able to sit down and restore this diplomatic relationship. Now, Professor, coming from as an expert as you are, how should we evaluate the reaction from the US? Is this really the saving face monologue or this is safe this is uh, uh, the face saving uh, uh i guess what we call this conversation in order to um, avoid bigger embarrassment so in other words we can't believe that china did it but this time right now we're going to be a bench player and we're just going to see what, what going to happens what do you think of that i mean yeah you're right the, the reaction has been huge i think there was a degree of surprise initially and then the degree of trying to find out what exactly was signed, because the statements were a little, a little bit sort of vague. Uh, obviously, the U.S. and Iran don't talk to each other, so the U.S. likely would have been talking to the Saudis. Mm. Again, the U.S. and China probably don't talk as much to each other as they used to as well. So I imagine the U.S. has been probably looking at this from a, a Saudi angle in terms of asking the Saudis what it is they agreed and what commitments they've made both to Iran and also to China. Um, so I, that's what I imagine the U.S. will have been doing behind the scenes this week. Now, obviously in public, they're welcoming any agreement that can dial down the tension in the Gulf. Mm. Now, the U.S. has been a little bit more aggressive in its statements about Iran over the last month. As I think an acknowledgement in D.C. on both parties that the JCPOA is finished that there's not going to be any revival, that they have to find a way of dealing with, in their terms, Iran. And clearly, this deal has undercut a lot of that momentum that seems to have been building for a more aggressive approach to Iran. We just saw even last week statements that Iran had reached uranium enrichment of 84%, mm -hmm. which is basically giving them, putting them almost at the threshold for having the capabilities, should they so choose, to go for a nuclear weapon. Now, there's no evidence yet that they've made that choice, but they're getting close to that threshold status. And so there had seemed to be, from a U.S. point of view, an increase of pressure on Iran from the U.S. And clearly this agreement uh, quite, is just almost quite the opposite. It's also a very strong signal from mm. a very key U.S. partner in the Gulf, Saudi Arabia, that actually we don't agree with this increase in pressure. So it's, you know, I think U.S. officials will be analyzing and talking to the Saudis to see where they go forward and how they, how they approach what happens next. 
Professor, I know you are very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Now, let's talk about the next topic. The news just broke out again a few hours ago that Chinese President Xi Jinping is set to visit Moscow next week. Again, we know that when we talk about nuclear weapons, not only the country of Iran and also the nation of Russia could easily terrify the entire world, given the fact that we're still watching this war in Ukraine. Some people believe that Russia and Iran are China's allies in the global struggle to undermine the American-led international order. Now, Professor, based on your expertise, do you think that by paying the visitation to Russia or by meeting up with Vladimir Putin, do you think that how much China is interested in building its alliance with Russia, with Iran, are undermining the influence of American order? What do you say to that? Well, uh, the, the Russia-Iran angle has been an issue of growing concern for the mm -hmm. U.S. in terms of the, obviously, the provision of drones from Iran to Russia for their use on the battlefields in Ukraine, where they've been used against civilian and infrastructure targets. Mm -hmm. And we now see signs that that relationship may be deepening in terms of military procurement and joint initiatives to develop weapons and this is obviously an issue of great concern also to the Saudi Arabia and to the Gulf states as well, which also might feed into their desire to reach, you know, reach an agreement with Iran to ensure that whatever support Iran is getting from Russia isn't used against them. Mm. You know, it's just one thing to have a relationship with Russia, but they don't want that to potentially jeopardize or empower Iran further vis-a-vis -vis Saudi Arabia. And so Iran, Saudi Arabia... And Iran, Russia, and China all have a, I guess, a common alignment of interest in mm. trying to, to work together. Saudi, Russia, and China, obviously, on the UN Security Council, can push back against U.S. attempts to try to further isolate Iran. So any closer relationship will be seen in that light. There's been, a, I think, a joint naval exercise involving Iranian and Russian and Chinese. Uh, vessels in recent weeks. So they're sending signals that they're going to work as a more, more as a block. And obviously, in terms of this much more polarized international context, you know, that is clearly working as a block against the US-led uh, kind of block that has tried to obviously enforce as over Ukraine their view of the sort of world international mm. order. And countries like Saudi Arabia have made it very clear that they don't want to be part of this block, mm. of blocks. This is not another Cold War where you're either in one camp or the other camp. The Saudis, the UAE and others have made it clear that they don't view this as a great power competition that involves them. And so we see Iran, China, Russia on the one side, we see the US on the other with Western European partners. But then we see Saudi Arabia saying, well, this isn't our issue. We're going to engage as and when we can again to advance our interests. Mm. So we see a close relationship between Saudi Arabia and Russia as well, between Saudi Arabia and China. So I think this is realigning international politics in, in, in different ways. And it's very different from, say, the initial Cold War, which we saw obviously in the 20th century. Professor, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking a very simple question. Again, right now, we know the political agenda is standing at the crossroads for the U.S., even though we are two years away from the next presidential election. But so far, 
sad to say that some countries have already completely lost the confidence in the foreign policy under the current administration. Again, Professor, you're the expert. In terms of U.S. interests in the Middle East, it's not just about the economic agenda. It's not just about this oil production or whatsoever. How would you evaluate current U.S. administration's agenda for the Middle East? Can we still see any hopes or any positive changes since China stepped in for the first place? What do you say to that? Well, the administration has not made the Middle East a priority of its focus. They obviously, even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think they were clear that uh, policy was focused on other areas. As to the Middle East, the administration initially had two objectives. One was to try to revive the JCPOA, but for whatever reason, they never really put the enough effort into doing that to make it possible. In my view, the administration should have just gone back into the JCPOA at the beginning and then worked from within to get Iran back into compliance. But for whatever reason, that wasn't the choice they made. And the other, I guess the other priority when the administration came in was to find a way to end the war in Yemen. And again, that hasn't happened yet. Although there's been a ceasefire, there's been a dramatic reduction in violence. But again, yes, if this could be a, a byproduct of the Saudi-Iran deal brokered by the Chinese, it could also be a, a way to find a way to ending the war in Yemen. So again, that would be something that a U.S. administration has tried and failed to do, that a Chinese brokered agreement could actually go further in mm. trying to achieve. And so I think this just makes it very clear that from a Middle East perspective, the Middle East has other options. It's not just the U.S. anymore. It's not just a political security relationship with the U.S. They have alternatives. They have China, to a lesser extent Russia, but they have other options. And the Saudis have made it very clear that we're not just going to go with the U.S. on everything, come what may. Mm. We will engage with China when we see it's in our interest, we'll engage with Iran when it's in our interest. And this is what I think is different now. You have a much more assertive Gulf states doing their own deals to advance their own interests, regardless of what the U.S. may think. And we saw this with OPEC Plus last year when uh, Saudi Arabia worked with Russia to cut oil uh, production mm. to keep prices higher, even though there was clear U.S. opposition to such a move. So I think we're seeing a much more assertive states in the Gulf. We're seeing concerns in the Gulf of the U.S. domestic political situation. They just don't know if the U.S. will be is committed to the Middle East. They obviously see China as the power of the 21st century, who, which will continue to have energy, commercial, deep energy and commercial interests in the region. So they're adjusting their foreign policies to obviously adjust to a new reality of the 21st century. And this is becoming very clear over the last couple of, uh, couple of weeks. Well, again, right now, we're only seeing the beginning of this year. Again, we're only in the third month of the year. We still have a long way to go. When we look at this political agenda, not just for the Middle East, but also for China and also for the U.S. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Christian Elrickson. Again, Dr. Elrickson is the fellow for the Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, and his research expands from history, political, and international political economy. Well, Professor, 
It's been a pleasure speaking to you, and thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. And I really appreciate your time. And we love to have you back on the show as we continue to pay attention to this Iran and Saudi deal, of course, with China and the rest of the world. Thank you so much for doing this.、Um, thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you.